You are listening to the Balmetto State Podcast, where we have conversations about all things basketball with a South Carolina flavor. Let's get started and tip off this episode with your host, the head basketball coach at Westwood High School, John Combs. Welcome to the Balmetto State Podcast. Our guest for Episode 8 is Coach Bailey Harris. From 1987 to 2019, Coach Harris was the head boys basketball coach at Lexington High School. During his 32 years at Lexington, they won 13 region championships, had 10 Final Four appearances, 6 state championship game appearances, and winning 2 state titles in 1996 and 2000. His 637 career wins ranks him tied 6th all-time in South Carolina High School League history for boys basketball. For nine years at Lexington High School, Coach Harris served as the head boys track coach, eight years as a head girls cross country coach, winning four region championships, and currently is going on 16 years as the boys cross country coach, earning four state championships. Coach Harris is a member of the South Carolina Basketball Coaches Hall of Fame and the South Carolina Track and Cross Country Coaches Association Hall of Fame. Before his high school coaching career, Coach Harris spent time coaching on the collegiate level. He was a member of the Furman's University's men's basketball coaching staff, and during the 1985-86 season, at the age of 22, he was the head women's basketball coach at Coastal Carolina University, earning him the distinction of being the youngest collegiate head coach in the nation at the time. Coach, welcome to the podcast. Doing great. A uh, little strange times here, but no complaints. Well, what are you doing with your, your time these days? What are you doing since the coronavirus started? Well, it was already a little bit of a different year with being kind of semi-retired anyway. Um, so I wasn't teaching. Um, still doing some things at Ben Lippin, uh, working with some coaches, doing some scheduling kind of things. So that kind of stuff is still uh, kind of continued, uh, have been producing a uh, weekly devotional for coaches and athletes that goes out on, on Friday uh, for them. Still trying to keep in touch with my cross-country runners at Lexington, just kind of making sure they're staying healthy and staying fit and just kind of, you know, checking in on them um, and spending a lot of time at home. The yard's probably looking the best it's been in a while. Um, a little too much time around the house and some of those kind of things, cleaned out the garage. But um, it's it's been definitely been different. Yeah, I, I would imagine for a lot of basketball coaches and people involved in the sports, this is probably the best people's yards have looked at this time of the year than they have in a long time. No um, question. You recently transitioned. Uh, you're still the uh, head cross-country coach at Lexington High School, but now you've taken on a new role with Ben Lippin. Tell us a little bit about that role. It's been interesting because I really didn't exactly know exactly what I was getting into when I did it. Um, it was a new role for them in a lot of ways. Um, I'm, I think I'm listed as director of coaches development and basketball operations, which I think means I'm kind of like the assistant AD with basketball, but on top of that, also go to practices to try to help out. Um, it was great. I got to go to your, your daughter's practices. I went to middle school boys practices, went to a little, try to go to like two practices a day and help out at practice, whether it was, you know, just being an assistant coach, giving a drill or giving some feedback to the coaches. So I definitely enjoyed that. That was, that was huge in stepping away from basketball to still be able to get to practice every day and work with kids. Um, wasn't on the bench during games and definitely don't want to, don't want to do that. Um, the working with coaches, we're trying to implement um, the 3D coaching platform. If you're familiar with that, um, with several of the coaches this spring, um, helped out with some scheduling things, just a kind of a little bit of 
a little bit of whatever was needed um, and, and got to, to speak with several of the teams, was doing a weekly devotion with uh, baseball and track and field in the spring when that got canceled and did that with um, the varsity boys and girls basketball teams uh, during the season, did a kind of weekly devotional, went through a book with the boys team. Um, so a little, little, kind of a little bit of everything with them. That was, it was been, it's been good. Well, I know you've, you've done a great job with that. And my daughters have said a lot of great things and talking to some other coaches. I know it's, you've been a tremendous asset to, uh, to Ben Lippin, um for sure. Let's go back. Who do you think some of your coaches or some of the people that have had the biggest influence on you as a coach growing up? Wow. Lots, lots there. Um, my high school coach was, was Joey Reed. I actually had him as a sophomore and a junior. And uh, he just really is probably the guy that instilled the love of basketball in me. And, and to make that uh, whole deal all the better, um, I was able to have him as an assistant coach my last 16 years at Lexington. And he worked with me. Um, he actually coached my son, and then I coached his son. Um, and Joey's on my staff in a lot of different ways. But so my high school coach, I got to then, you know, like I say, work with him the last 16 years. And Joey Reed definitely was huge. He, he put that love of basketball in me. From a technical standpoint and learning the game, uh, I went to Presbyterian College as a freshman player. And uh, Butch Estes, I, I guess it probably had to be some some older guys to, to remember Butch Estes, but he is a phenomenal basketball mind. Still in the game, but um, he was phenomenal. And uh, his assistant was Greg Nybert, and people are probably more familiar with him. And those two guys, being around those two guys was just fantastic. But then also uh, – was around a couple of athletic directors that were huge impact on me in the way that they handled people and dealt with people. Um, Callie Galt was the football coach and AD at Presbyterian college and just one of the finest people you would ever meet. Um, he's in the hall of fame and he's in the hall of fame because of how he treated people, not because of the games that he won. And, um, I got pretty, I was pretty close with Callie. He was in my dad's church. My dad was a preacher and, and he was in my dad's church. So he, Callie always looked out for me. Um, then my first real job out of uh, Presbyterian College, I went to Coastal and was hired by the athletic director, Bobby Richardson, the, the baseball legend. And uh, I think people know him for, you know, for the being the legend that he was with the Yankees. But uh, he, he may be as good of a person as I've ever been around. And he really just kind of uh, took me under his wing. In fact, I lived with him the first three weeks I was on the job down there. And um, he, he was just a great influence on me on how to treat people and how to deal with people. And so I'm very, very blessed with some really good coaches um, that I've been around and, and some ADs as well. Well, that sounds like, a, you know, one of the things I've loved having you on the podcast is you do have a very wide range of experience with uh, different levels of basketball that, that you've been a part of. As a coach, what are you most proud of your time as a, as a basketball coach? Most proud of probably the relationships with um, the guys and girls that I've coached and what they've gone on to do. And um, I can say that across all the sports. I'm, I'm probably super proud. The thing that sticks out probably the most to me is my guys that have gone into coaching that I was able to coach that have gone into coaching. But um, I also ran into a former player at the hospital um, last month with my wife, who's a surgeon. Um, and it, it's nice to know you, you've got to be around some of those guys as well. Um, and just the, what, what some of those people have become, um, the, maybe the best example of that would be um, 
a guy named Nate O'Kelly that played for me in 95. And um, Nate didn't come from the best of backgrounds or best of families. He kind of had a rough upbringing, but just really grew and grew and flourished. And um, long story short, Nate currently is uh, flies Hornet, F-14 Hornets, I believe it is, off of aircraft carriers. And wow. it's just been phenomenal. But even better than that is a great dad and great wife excuse me, great dad and a great um, husband and a great family man. And um, he's just, when you see guys like that, that, that have succeeded in life in so many ways, not just, you know, financially, but, you know, but being that, that, like I say, that great family guy, that's probably what I'm most proud of of anything. You mentioned relationship building. Were you as good at relationship building when you were younger or understood the importance in your coaching career? Or is that something that developed over, over time that you realized how important relationship building with your student athletes was? I'll be honest. I don't think I really understood that when I was a younger coach. I think I was much more focused on winning, losing, and getting to be a better player. Um, I say that, and, and that said, some of those players off of my very first teams are some of the guys I'm the closest with. So I must have done at least something halfway right, or at least they forgave me or something, because guys like Rob Powell, uh, that was a senior on my uh, very first team, and, and um, Brett Jones was a junior on that team. I mean, I'm, I'm really close with those guys today. And uh, they were guys that I had very early on in my career. And I, I definitely don't think I was as intentional about the relationship side of it at that point um you know hopefully i just got a little bit lucky about it i think that's one of the things i definitely matured at and got better at uh with, with years in coaching do you think that's something that's more important in today's uh, basketball realm than relationship building with student athletes no question i don't think you can coach them if you don't have that relationship i, I just don't think you know I'm old school. And back in my day, you did it because the coach said, do it. And it didn't matter about anything else. If the coach said, do it, then you do it. It didn't matter if it was stupid or made sense or you liked it or whatever. Um, I think today's athletes, you really have to, to build that relationship and, and that trust factor both ways. They trust you and you trust them. Um, and I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily. I mean, I, I think that's, you know, I think that's a, a huge positive. Uh, that's one of the things with the 3d coaching module I mentioned earlier that um, I've been through in some past years and we're working with um, at Ben Lip, and you're, you're trying to get coaches to understand three different levels of working with kids that you've got to teach them the skill of the sport. That's the first dimension. And if you don't do that, you're shortchanging them. You got to teach them, you know, you got to teach them to be the best in the sport. And then you've got to, um, you know, you got to build that relationship with them. You got to, you got to do those kind of things. And then the, the third dimension there, the third phase kind of is talking about, you know, dealing with their spiritual life. And, um, and that's one great thing about being at a, at a, Christian school like Ben Lippin is that you can you can freely talk about those things. Yeah, no, it's a tremendous uh, benefit of that for sure. You know, you've probably got one of the largest and probably you know most successful coaching trees around going on underneath you. Let's let's talk about some of your former players that are now coaching. That's uh, that's probably that probably gets a smile on my face quicker than anything because I I really love that and um. I think sometimes people point to like, you know, Hey, you did a great thing with that. But I look at it and that's why I was able to be successful as a coach. Cause I had these guys that really understood the game and uh, yeah, I probably helped that some, but uh, when you have guys that understand the game like that, it's easy to understand why we were able to win games when those guys were playing. 
um, lots of them. And I've got them in uh, I, the, the, the track. Some of my track and cross country guys get overlooked because I got some of those guys in coaching I'm pretty proud of too. But from a basketball standpoint, I mean, locally here, you've got um, you got Devin Lifridge at uh, White Knoll and Ben Lee at uh, River Bluff. And I'm not sure if people are, are aware of it. Those two guys were co-captains um, and teammates together at Lake Sonora, 99 team that uh, played LR for the state championship. And uh, that's two as high character guys as you would ever want to meet. And um, to, to watch them coach their teams, um, I'm, I'm very proud of, of both those two guys. And then sticking locally here, uh, Brett Jones was on my, my two very first teams. And then after being an All-American at PC, came back and helped me um, in Lexington to win a couple of state championships before taking over at White Knoll and now at Dutch Fork. And um, then he obviously got to play for the 5A state championship last year against another one of my former players, um, Thomas Ryan. And the Ryan family is very special to me. Coached uh, three of the Ryan brothers and um, coming through. And uh, that family is very special to me. And then uh, both assistant coaches in that game, Zach Rich at Dorman and Jason Kotchkroft at Dutch Fork, uh, are both Lexington alum that played for me that I keep up with pretty good. Um, so those, those guys, I think, are the ones that, that come to, to name first with people. Um, David Long, who's the new girls coach at Ben Lippin, uh, played for me on those teams back when I had Brett Jones at, at Lexington. Um, and David's been the girls coach at Lexington for a while, and I think we'll do a great job at, at Ben Lippin. And um, Jason Harmon, who is uh, the head varsity coach here at in, in Lexington at, at Northside Academy, and also runs uh, 3D hoops and does a lot with um, off-season basketball and workouts and training, does a great job with that stuff. Uh, Will Clark is the head coach at Palmetto. I believe you actually played them in the playoffs this year. Yep. And uh, I think Will does a great job with what he's got. He's not in necessarily the best situation, but does a really good job with his kids at Palmetto. Does a great job with them. Um, yeah, Will was uh, Will was a junior on the 2000 state championship team uh, with Sheldon Everett, who is um, an assistant coach at Missouri State. And he's been a Division One coach for the last probably 12 years. Uh, but he's an assistant at, at Missouri State, and um, and a couple got a couple others at the college level. Um, Jay Reed um, is at Lincoln Memorial. They uh, they got uh, they got to feel tough here. They had a chance to win the whole thing. I think we're on a 32 game win streak in Division Two, longest win streak in the nation of any category. Uh, when their season got canceled this year at the end, he's at Lincoln Memorial doing really well as a. I think a very well-respected recruiter and developer of players. And then uh, Corey Hendren, assistant at USC Aiken. And uh, I think at one point they had a list of top D2 coaches in the country, and Corey and Jay were, were both listed in the top 10 in the nation as D2 assistants. Um, those guys are all, all kind of all part of the family there. And then, like I say, I got several that are coaching uh, cross-country and track and um, even some guys who are coaching football that, that played basketball or ran track for me. So it's that's that's probably the highlight of coaching to me is those those former guys, but especially the ones that, that kind of follow your footsteps, so to speak. Well, those guys are all being highly successful and, and, and doing a tremendous job. Tell me, how, how, how was it to have two of your former players play against each other in a state championship game? Uh, it was phenomenal. Um, and, and I – 
I really kind of called it because I, re- I really felt like Brett had a really good shot at being there. And I mean, it didn't take a genius to figure out that Dorman was going to get there. <laughs> and um, I really felt like Brett had a good chance to do that. And um, I, I got to see him play seven or eight times. And, and what's kind of special about watching Brett, maybe even more than some of the rest of them, um, like my son and I were both in, um, we're, we're both in, uh, Brett's wedding, um, you know, Brett was, was an, like I said, didn't just play for him, but was an assistant coach with me and his brother played for him. So very close with the family. And then his son was playing for him this year. And I mean, to watch, to watch that next generation playing was just really something else. And, um, I went to watch him in the lower state. And to me, though, I may be a little odd on this, but the, to me, the lower or upper state game, that semifinal game is really, to me, the most pressure packed game of any when you when you peel it all back because if you lose it's done and you missed out on that chance to get to the state championship if you won win lose or draw they're putting a medal around your neck in the on the big stage and you're going to get a play in front of 10,000 plus so to me the emotions and the the pressure in that upper lower state game to me are always the, the biggest one and um I went down to Florence and watched them I was sitting with actually my wife and I were sitting with um we're sitting right beside Jason's Kotchkoff's wife during the game and um, when they won I was I was down there afterwards to hug them and next thing I know I'm balling I'm crying up I mean I'm crying like you know crazy here I'm like wait wait a minute and um, I'm hugging them and Brett's like you all right man I'm like yeah I'm great and uh, I turned around and Rob Powell's standing right behind me and Rob's crying so um, it definitely was an emotional thing and you know going into the game it wasn't a whole lot of contest I'm, I'm not taking anything away from Brett or Thomas it wasn't a whole lot of contest who was going to win that one mm-hmm. so it wasn't it wasn't really a stressful game there but just really happy for both those guys to get there yeah I mean that was tremendous um, and I will say you called it early on that Dutch Fork was you thought all along for a long time that they may be very well the second best team in 5A and you said that very Early on, Brett did a phenomenal job um, with him in the whole course of the year. And, of course, Coach Ryan, who was just recently named by Ball's Life the National Basketball High School Coach of the Year. I mean, that's uh, that's certain to be a lot to be a proud of. That's pretty phenomenal. When you watch Thomas's team there, I mean, yeah, they've got more talent than everybody else. And, and he could just roll the ball out there and they would kick your tail and beat you because they're better. But uh, I watched him enough this year they were very well coached and they were very disciplined. They ran their offense. Their, uh, their own ball screen defense was as good as I've seen at any level. I mean, they were impressive when you watch the little things. Um, I guess when you're a coach or an ex coach, that's what you're paying attention to is those little things like that. And um, I I thought Thomas did a phenomenal job with his guys. And and it's not always easy to manage egos. I told Thomas before the season started, I said, this is not going to be the most fun year you've ever had. Because managing all that, um, you know, when you're winning like that, you have problems like I didn't get the ball enough. I didn't get enough publicity. Why am I not getting recruited by this, you know, this, that, and the other? Uh, We went through a little bit of that in the late late 90s there when we played four. I think we won two and lost two in the finals in a five-year stretch. And it was not the most fun stretch of my coaching career because the expectations are so high that when you win, it's like, you know, why didn't you win by more? Or why didn't so-and-so, you know, it just, it's not always as, uh, as easy as it looks when you're, when you're loaded like that. And uh, I thought Thomas managed it extremely well. No, I, I completely agree. I think he did an outstanding job and 
you know, you're certainly right from my past experiences. Some of my probably least favorite coaching years at times have been some of my most talented teams, whether it's the dome pressure you put on yourself or pressure and expectations, others that place on you and the uh, players itself. But no, I completely understand that. I know something really important to you is your family and your faith. How, how would you say growing up, um, you know, having, you know, having your kids uh, around, how did that change you as a coach or did it change you much as a coach? Um, I think it might've kept me grounded. Um, and, and that's my wife's credit there. You know, we talk about coaches wives all the time. And if there's a hall of fame for coaches wives, you know, Beth got to be in the, the inaugural class or, or right there in it. Um, because, you know, as a coach, sometimes you, you lose perspective and, and you put too much emphasis on either the winning or the losing or taking care of your players instead of your own family. And I think Beth did a great job of knowing when it was time for me, you know, when I needed to spend more time with my team or, you know, with the, one of the players. And, you know, then she knew when to say, hey, wait a minute. No, this, this is the time you need to, you know, you, you can't miss this. You need to be here with family. So I, I got to give all the credit in the world to Beth on that. Um, she was phenomenal and still is, even with cross country um, with the kids. It's great about that. Um, and she enjoys being around the kids. She's one of those coaches. She wants the kids to be at the house. And that's one of the things she liked the most about this year with my cross country team is the kids coming to the house for long run Saturdays and you know cooking pancakes for them afterwards. That's, that's one of the things she really enjoys about sports. Um, and we decided very early on that, that the kids were going to be as involved as absolute possible could be. And so, like, when Beth hears these other coaches' wives say something about couldn't go to a game because the kids are something, I mean, she almost just laughs, starts laughing at them because she, you know, dragged our troop through every gym um, in the state and all over the place with, you know, tournaments in Florida and everywhere else. Um, we've always just made that a family affair. Well, I think that I think that's really good, and that's it's that's good to hear. That. Would you? What advice would you give to, I say, a young coach that's starting a family, and getting into coaching, becoming a head coach? Any advice you'd give to them? Wow, the the balance is really tricky, um, and you've got to rely. I think you've got to rely on your family to help help you keep the perspective because you're going to miss some things in your kid's life. If you're a coach, you're going to miss some things that your kids are doing that everybody else gets to go to. I mean, I don't I don't know how you don't. I miss some things in my kid's life and. You know, maybe I maybe I didn't always make the right call on that. Um, but, you, but, you know, your basketball family, you know, there, there's times when those kids need you really bad, too. Um, I think you got to rely on your family. And, you know, that's why I go back to hope, hopefully you married right and have the right coach's wife, because that's a that's a different that's a different individual there. And um, I just had to trust Beth when, you know, when she said, you know, hey, it's OK to miss for this or, hey, you need to be here for this. Um, but I definitely would tell young coaches, try to involve your family as much as you can. That's one of the reasons I, that I like the high school basketball setting compared to college. Uh, when I was a GA uh, at, at Furman before I came to Lexington, I, I realized that I didn't control the schedule. And family could be involved with basketball only when, you know, the head coach said it could be involved. And that depended on travel. And sometimes it was just, you know, just players and coaches. And sometimes it was wives and sometimes it was family. But as a high school coach, I realized that I'm the one that controlled that. So I always tried to make um, it, it. I always tried to make it a family environment. When we went on our Christmas tournaments trips, and we went to Florida. I think the last several years, and I think I did this throughout. 
you know, our traveling party with players. And I wanted every coach to take their wife and their entire family with them. It was none of this, hey, the four coaches of us are going. I want every coach and every kid they had to go. We, you know, our traveling party was like 35 when we were going places. And because um, I wanted it to be as much of a family environment as possible. And one of the importance of that, I thought, was that we're showing our kids, our players, that, you know, you can include family and family is important here. I, I think they need to see. I think they need to see you being a good dad to your kid and being a good, you know, husband to your wife. I think they need to see that. And the only way they can see that is if they, you know, they're at your house or how you treat, you know, your family after a game or, you know, when you're at a Christmas tournament like that. And my kids always wanted to go when they were little. They wanted to, you know, hang out and play on the beach with, with the players and things like that. So I think it's very important that you blend them together. I completely agree. I think modeling the behavior for our student athletes are is something really, really important for sure. All right, let's go yeah. back to 1987. All right. You were just hired at Lexington High School, and how did, did you have any idea that for the next 32 years you were going to be a teacher in basketball no. and multiple no. sport coach there? No, no clue. I got the job because nobody else wanted it, I think. Um, they were coming off of a 19-straight loss, one in 19 season. Um, had been through six coaches in 10 years. Uh, I think had averaged less than five wins a season in that stretch and had really struggled um, just having any stability. I, I had just gotten my finished up my, my GA spot at Furman uh, and was, was really wanting to try the high school route. Lexington was not my first choice. It was about my third choice. Um, I had looked a couple other places, even accepted a job, a couple other places. And it was one of those cases where the Lord just opened and closed some doors. And we ended up in Lexington, not knowing a soul, not, you know, just kind of like really, truly the Lord opening doors. But I did not think it was for the long haul. Um, now, we had pretty good players right from the start for a team that lost 19 games in a row. Uh, you know, I walk in to, to uh, Brett Jones, um, who obviously was really good player, but he had, he had guys to go with him. Gary Anderson, the Cromer family had just moved. I had Burt Cromer uh, on that first team. Uh, Brian Haynes, who just passed away this past week, was a really good shooter on that team. Robert Satcher, I think, saw, uh, kids are involved at Ben Lippin. I think, I think Robert's on the board out there at Ben Lippin as well. Those guys were all pretty good players. I mean, I had, had, had talent. And I think the thing was, and I'm just talking with Brett over the years, was like we just didn't know how to win. Um, you know, it was no problem getting them to, to work or to show up for things. They wanted to, they were hungry. They wanted to work. And, um, we, we were fairly successful that first year. I remember every game was a celebration. If you won, cause coming off of 19 losses in a row, any game you won was a party in the locker room afterwards. And we went 17 and eight that first year. And, uh, it was a blast. Uh, we, we had, you know, like I say, every, every win was a celebration. And then the next year we go 20, you know, we were really good and go 23 and five and get beat by Spartanburg, uh, in the upper state. Um, in the final four of that game. And, but, but I still did not think, you know, this is something I'm going to do for the long haul. Um, but, but that said, I, I have only, I only interviewed two places, uh, in, in my third, the last 32 years. Huh. Um, I went back and interviewed at Lawrence high school, which I know that sounds kind of crazy, but that was back close to home. Uh, my parents and best parents were both in Clinton at the time and kind of looked at it as, you know, maybe going back being closer to family. I interviewed there, oh, geez, somewhere in the early 90s. And then I went back and talked to Butch Estes at Furman, uh, who had been my coach at PC, about going back to Furman's staff 
full time. And um, honestly, in both cases, um, I think Beth felt more comfortable staying at Lexington and liked Lexington. And um, it just uh, it, it, it turned into what thirty three years now. So wow. uh, I think it's just a matter of the Lord, the Lord opening and closing doors for me. Well, I mean, I think it's it's awesome. You don't see. I, I think there's so much turnover. It seems like a lot of turnover now. I don't know what the uh, the averages of a coaching's life span at a particular school, but I think that's that's awesome. And the time that you put in there for such a long time. What do you feel? Is yeah, the t- and, and multi sports the entire time. Yeah. I, mean, I, I was pr- kind of proud of that. I came as the head. Tra- I came as the assistant track coach, head basketball coach. After the first year, um, the track coach left, so I became the head track coach. I did that, and then in the transition year, I was actually a head coach of track, basketball, and cross country for one year um, in transitioning over to, to cross country. Um, and then, obviously, I've continued with the cross country um, after retired from basketball. But yeah, I, I enjoy coaching um, different sports and kids from in different walks like that. What do you feel is the toughest part about coaching basketball? Hmm. Getting kids to buy into the time commitment that it takes to be a good player. That it's not, it's not just a, when we have practice, you know, they've got to, they've got to put in a lot of work on their own. They've got to be willing to stay after practice, come early before practice, putting in that extra time. I, I think that's probably as big a challenge as anything. And then when you get them to buy into that, getting them and their parents to buy into what their role on the team is. That's that's probably as hard a thing as, as you can get. And when you can get that right, those are your teams that are going to really be successful. Do you think, and this is just me, do you feel like basketball, I feel like there's times people are playing basketball too much to get a scholarship as opposed to just playing for the love of the game or trying to win. Do you see that as an issue? No question. I don't think that's just basketball. I think that's sports in general today. I just look at social media and all you know, kids that are tweeting about what offer they got or this, that, or the other. I, I think that, and, and and I think it largely comes from a parent concern. They're too concerned about that scholarship. Um, and they're more concerned, you know, they'd trade the scholarship for you winning the region. You know, you give them a choice at the beginning of the season. You know, my kid can go to scholarship, or this team can win a region. They're taking the scholarship every time uh, right now. And I don't think that would have been the case, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And like I say, when you get teams that get it right, it makes it really special. The last team I had at Lexington, I don't think was my most talented team ever. It was as fun as I've ever had um, coaching. And um, a lot of it, other than the fact it was just a really good group of kids to be around. I mean, they were, they were just entertaining individuals, Um, but they really got their role. I mean, they, they got it. They, they understood, you know, what your job was, whether it was, you know, going to be largely just the practice guy to get the other group ready to go, or whether it was going to be come in for a few minutes here, you know, there were no egos really. Um, you, you know, the best players on that team were guys that really worked hard and didn't care about stats. And uh, they, they bought into that, you know, understanding your role. That's, that's, I think one of the toughest things we face as coaches today. Now, was that something that you spent time before the season, during the season, talking about each individual player's role, or how did you address that? Yeah, that, that's something I've tried to do my my entire career. I, I learned that lesson. I, personally, I learned it early on because as a high school player, 
and I was an all-state player. I averaged a lot of points. You know, I was a scorer, and, and that was my role. And then I, I went to college, and I worked just as hard. In fact, I worked harder than anybody else. And I sat on the dead end of the bench and, you know, didn't get in the game till it was, you know, long decided. And my, my college playing career was pretty minimal. And um, Coach Estes con- was able to convince me, like, you know, you need to be – if you're the 14th guy, then you need to be the best 14th guy, and you need to – make sure that our starting point guard is ready to go when he gets to the game. The only way that's going to happen is if you, you know, give everything you got in practice every day. And I, I bought in and I, I, I bought that. And um, so I kind of had that mentality as a player. And that I've always tried to kind of get that across. And I've, I've always felt like during the course, we, we always met at least three times during the course of the year. When I say the year, I mean 12 months, including the summertime, and let people know kind of what their role was and – um, where they stood at that point. Like, we, you know, we got through team camp stuff in June. We'd sit, I'd sit down with every individual. This is kind of where you're at right now. Now, it'll change between now and November. And then right before the season starts, try to sit down and do the same thing. And then we try to do the same thing again, like over Christmas break. Like, this is your role. This is where you are kind of on the depth chart. This is what you got to do, you know, kind of those kind of things. So that, that, that was how I went about trying to make sure people understood uh, their role and their value to the team. What is something now that you you stepped away coaching for a year and, and you did a you've been able to watch a lot of games, probably seen some different practices, you know, more so than you probably have in the past. But what are some things you think coaches do that are maybe they don't add a whole lot of value that you think us coaches, high school coaches, place too much value on this and probably should do less of this and more of that? I I don't know that I can say that I've watched anybody else waste time. I, I do think the one thing that that I kind of, as I went back and evaluated myself, because I always like to try, try to like to do a lot of self-evaluation, I felt like I almost spent, almost battled it as a coach that I spent too much time working on last-second situations, um, and I felt like I spent too much time shooting the ball in practice, um, because part of me wanted to say, you know, that needs to be extra, that needs to be something kids do on their own, because we shot an awful lot uh, at practice, and then we worked on special situations every day all year long um and as i say that i also would like to think that my teams were pretty good basketball iq and pretty good shooters and i think that's probably one of the things that helped develop that and and i felt like i battled it at times that i spent too much time on those two things and and yet at the same time i think you know it may have been two of the things that helped us win games um i don't know that i can say that i've that i've watched people overemphasize the wrong things um you know, I've maybe watched coaches that, that I think pull players too quickly. Mm-hmm. That, that's probably been one thing that I've watched from the stands. It's like, ooh, man, you, you pulled that guy out. And, um, you know, really, really crawled him for a mistake there. And, and you know, hopefully hopefully you've got the, the, rep, the rapport with him, you know, that that's not going to cost, you know, his, his ability um, to function later on. Well, the one thing I'll say every time that after me and you've either played or scrimmaged, I mean, you – You've always done a great job of wanting feedback uh, about your team. One, you're, you're always trying to learn and evaluate your team, and sometimes it's hard to. I think it, I think it's sometimes hard to watch your own team and get an accurate feedback because maybe you have some preconceived notions of w- what's done. But I've always thought you did a really good job of that. But I will say you were the only coach that uh, that says that they may have shot too much in practice. When I go to <laughs> clinics and hear stuff, coaches are always saying the opposite. I don't think we shoot enough in practice and 
Um, I, I think that's you know, but, but like go back to what you said too. Your, your teams have traditionally been pretty good shooting teams and, and shot the ball pretty well. I mean, especially with that fourth block or that you know that extra that basketball class, you know, early in the year, you know, you just uh, we a lot of shots. And then when we got in the season, I was kind of like, okay, they're used to getting up, you know, this many shots in practice, so we we kind of kept doing it. The evaluation part, I, I'm I 100% agree because. You know, you kind of get to where you like you defend your players to the point that you almost you take up for what they do wrong, and you you need one of your you, you kind of need that self scout. You need somebody else that you know that that you trust to say, hey, wait a minute, you know this guy, he's killing you right here. He doesn't do this for you at all, and it's hard it's hard to see that yourself. And you know your assistant coaches don't always point it out. So I always tried to bring in somebody to give us to scout us, or when we scrimmage, or like if I played you in a non conference game. You know, I wanted I wanted to get that feedback out. You know, the last couple of years we always scrimmaged. Um, my first two scrimmages were always going to be um, Keenan and AC Floor. For one, you're going to find out what your weaknesses are real quick. And uh, those guys were pretty good. Zach, uh, Zach and Josh were both great about you know giving you feedback on what they thought you did well or what you, you know, where they thought they could maybe take advantage of you. So I feel like that's something you got to do as a coach to to keep getting better. You've coached against some really, really good players. Who are some of the best players you've you've coached against in high school? I had this discussion with the, uh, Thomas Grant with the Lexington Chronicle uh, the the other day. It was great. Um, lots of good ones. Number one is Kevin Garnett, and that is the end of the discussion. And not that he doesn't have competition in that category, but Garnett was incredible. Uh, we played Kobe Bryant, um, and not that he wasn't, you know pretty incredible back then and you could see it coming but Garnett was 6'11 and did all that uh whereas Kobe was 6'6 um Deron Williams who might not have even been the best player on his high school team they had a guy named Bracey Wright who if he hadn't blown out his knee probably breaks all the NBA three-point records um that played at Indiana those guys both played for the colony out of Texas we played them at the beach ball and they were a phenomenal backcourt I mean Deron Williams was a, a Olympian and pretty big time player um the most maybe the most impressive looking in a uniform was Dante Culpepper um played quarterback for the Vikings for a long time there he was a 6'5 235 pound point guard and I got a hand it to Thomas Ryan who was probably giving up about 100 pounds to him at the time Thomas took a charge from him uh down in uh, Ocala Vanguard in their tournament and I didn't think Thomas was going to get up from that one um <laughs> Culpepper was pretty impressive Jalil Okafor was not bad. We never played um, Eau Claire in a regular season game, but we always scrimmaged because I like the feedback from George Glimp as well. And we always scrimmaged Jermaine, and Jermaine would definitely have to fall in that category as well. Yeah, no. Lots of fun when you go to those big tournaments and play those people like that, though. I mean, did, I, I remember the Kevin Garnett days when he was around. You knew he was, I, I felt uh, he was going to be special. Did you did you have any idea that Kobe and Kevin were going to be special, or did you thought they were just pretty good? No, I thought they were both going to be special. Now I missed on Garnett in one way that I'll be the first to admit. I, I did not like Garnett's demeanor, behavior slash attitude, whatever you want to call it, kind of his persona. And I thought, you know, when this guy goes straight to the NBA as an eighteen year old, he's going to have problems. You know, he's going to get in some trouble, this, that, and the other. And I've got to hand it to Garnett. He was really, really good at keeping his nose clean, working hard, getting better. I mean, he had zero issues that I'm aware of because, you know, stuff, you know, it never made it to the media if it did. You know, he, he, 
he lived a pretty clean life and, and, you know, really didn't have any of the issues. And that's tough for an 18 year old, any 18 year old. Um, but you know, like I say, I, I thought his, you know, demeanor and all would have was kind of maybe leaning toward trouble a little bit, but he was fantastic. And I was a huge Kevin Garnett fan. Kobe, it wasn't any question about it. You knew he was just going to get a little bigger and a little stronger to go with it. And he was so skilled and so smooth. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you could have said quite as good as they were, but you, you knew they were going to be special for sure. And now Okafor, I thought, would have been better than, than he turned out. Yeah. But who, did, who did you have guard Garnett when you played? Uh, we were matchup zone, and I had two pretty good post players at the time. I had James Stokes and C.B. Dreer, probably the best post combination I've ever had. Um, those two guys were pretty good. Stokes was a six six kid, all state. Uh, C.B. Dreer was a uh, really athletic, about six two post player. Um, but it didn't matter if you had Garnett boxed out or whatever. He'd just go, and I'm not going to say over your back. He'd just go over you with those arms, and you know, and tip the ball or block it or you know. I think Stokes did have a couple of dunks, but you know, Garnett pretty much controlled the lane area, and then he was such a good passer. That was the thing. If you you know, if you doubled him or tripled him or whatever. He could find guys like crazy, and he was just such a good passer that uh, he was impossible to guard for us. With maybe the exception of, of a state championship game, what's a what's a game as a coach you would like to to relive? If you could relive one of your games, don't don't include not, state championship games. Not a state it? championship. Yep, not a state um, championship. That's that's pretty easy, probably because during the game, I'm so locked in, like. I have to find my wife or family in the stands before the thing tips off because once the national anthem goes, the building could burn down and I probably wouldn't even be aware. I just get this locked in tunnel vision. And so I'm, I'm just, I'm thinking about the next play. And I remember sitting watching this game or coaching this game thinking, wow, this is fun. This is pretty awesome. And then I'm thinking, wait a minute, somebody's going to lose this thing. and It's going to be over with. And it was um, 2010, we're playing Berkeley in, I think, the second round of the playoffs, and um, Ellington versus Shaq Rowland, and they just put on a show. I think, I think Shaq ended up with 34, and Ellington ended up with 33. Uh, we had the, we led the entire game. Ellington comes back and makes a couple of just ridiculous plays and shots at the end. They go up to, um, we got the ball and purposely called timeouts. One of the things we'd worked on, called timeout where we'd have a baseline out of bounds play uh, with just minimal of time left. And um, this was Shaq Rowland was really, really, other than being athletic, was really intelligent on getting what you wanted. We wanted to get him an inbounds play coming to the rim, you know, either scored or get fouled. He gets fouled, hits two free throws. We go overtime. Um, overtime did not go well for them. Um, I think we ended up winning by 15 or 16 in overtime um some things just kind of unraveled i think there were some technical fouls it, it kind of got out of hand but uh, it was just a phenomenal game in a packed house um at, at lexington that that game against berkeley is probably um as memorable as any uh, uh, aside from the state championship game now i know i think most coaches have that one or two games that they that they lost that still bother them to this day do you have any like that definitely um and I'm the guy that kind of gets over the loss quicker. My wife still has problem with 1989 at Spartanburg in the upper state championship. That one still bothers her. Um, gets me too. Uh, felt like we kind of got the short end of the stick in that one. 
uh, the state championship loss to Gaffney in 2012, where Shaq Rollum, who had hit tons of clutch free throws um, in his career, missed a pair of free throws, and they end up putting the game into overtime and end up beating us in overtime. That one, that one really hurts. Um, and, and then one that kind of sticks out that you may remember, um, and another stat I'm fairly proud of, only one home playoff loss in 32 years. That's that value of that home court. And that was against you in uh, Ridgeview. And if I recall correctly, we were up six with about a minute to go. Y'all just came full-scale trap, mug us, take, you know, be aggressive like you had to do at that point. And um, I don't recall a lot of whistles being blown. And um, I think y'all ended up beating us in overtime. And that was one I certainly would have liked to have had, had back for sure. Um, felt like I probably could have done some things there at the end um, to, to – maybe prevent that one from happening well it was that one was a, a fun, fun game for us I remember we had a we had one of those guys shoot a shot at the time that as a coach you're probably like is that a, that's not a really good shot but then he he nails it from about tw- that's, that's usually the case in any big win for sure and then in the other you know it, it was in my last year but the the regular season win at River Bluff uh where we're down 10 with two minutes to go um and come back and Carver hits a tough shot uh to win it with like point three to to maintain the regular season undefeated um, regular season there uh, at River Bluff in my last year that one uh, I'm I'm sure that one will still be favorable to my memory for a while. When I say Columbia basketball, what do you think about? What comes to mind? If we were to play word association and you said Columbia basketball, I'm going old school. I'm going George Glimp, Carl Williams, Ben Trapp. Jim Parker. When I first got to Columbia, I didn't really know anybody or anything. I knew Jim Parker through uh, some basketball camps. And um, Parker kind of took me under his wing and took me to the old coaches' meetings with those guys, Tim Whipple, obviously. Um, but he was still, you know, relatively early in his career at that point, too. Um, and those guys um, were great. Um, I'm not, you know, we didn't necessarily go, you know, hang out and play golf with those guys, but, but it's from a basketball standpoint and kind of welcoming me into Columbia. Glint, Glint was great. He would come out and speak to my teams. Occasionally I would get him to come out there and always just, um, uh, really a lot of spec- respect for those guys. And then Jim Parker, I got the, the privilege of, if you're old school Columbia guy, um, after he finished his career at Columbia high, I ended up, uh, having him on my staff for about 14 or 15 years. Um, but those guys, to me, that's old school Columbia basketball. Kerry Rich, and that crowd, those those old guys playing the Eau Claire guys and the C.A. Johnson guys. Um, we never were, you know, we were kind of the outside looking in. You know, we we're on the wrong side of the river, I think, because people didn't really always associate Lexington with Columbia basketball because we were we were kind of out here. But um, I remember those those old coaches meetings with those guys. We used to have a Saturday morning coaches meeting um, with those old school guys, and they were phenomenal coaches. Yeah, I mean, I had the pleasure to get to know Coach Glimpf a little bit, uh, a lot over the years, and he was his sharing of knowledge and willingness to share his time and knowledge with, you know, a lot of coaches to me is something that was extremely impressive. Uh, Glimp was unbelievable. Like I say, I would get him to, to come speak to my team about every other year and just talk to him because he just, I mean, I was just huge. I was in pretty much in awe of Glimp. He and he, he would allow us to, to scrimmage them. And when you got to go to the rock pit and scrimmage them with, uh, you know, with the likes of Jermaine, that was, uh, you know, that was a great experience. And one of my kids, the, the Heskett kid that played for me, he and Jermaine played on um, AAU teams together. So I would, would see George in that 
um, medium sum that that kind of helped too. But even from the very beginning, when I was just this you know 24 year old fresh out of you know grad school kid, those guys, I think they were a little skeptical at first, but they were they were very welcoming, and I was very appreciative of that. Well, you know, it's funny growing up. Um, I grew up a Irmo High School kid, and of course, I always looked at at you and Coach Glimp kind of like the evil empires of basketball. <laughs> Y'all were always the the, the the rivals at the time, the near the top, the best. And you know, I was at the University of South Carolina at the time, and then I started to uh, got got into high school coaching, and then I started to get to know you guys, and I was like, you know. Not half bad. And, you know, your your willingness, yours and Coach Glimp's willingness to share your time and knowledge with with us coaches has been uh, tre- tremendous. I mean, it really has been special. And we certainly appreciate you, you know, do that. Because, I mean, I, I know you share your time and knowledge with lots of, of different coaches. And so I think whatever Coach Glimp and some of those older coaches, when they were – sharing their knowledge with you I, I you certainly have, have done that with a, a lot of us coaches recently well that's that's been really one of the fun things with this year and i've never really minded sharing before but i think you know when you're competing against people you, it, it makes it a little different i got tons of calls this year you know like hey y'all always run that matchup zone can you show me how you did this or you know y'all ran that set play against us this year we, what were you looking for how'd you and i i'm not a real good technology person but we, we were able to you know between FaceTime and all, you know, some other, some other good video inventions there, pull out the mark board, set it up, draw some things up and do some Q and a, um, some late night Q and a, uh, this basketball season. And I really had a blast doing that with, um, you know, a lot of them were, were, were guys that I had known pretty well, but a handful of them were guys that I really did not have a lot of association with. And they just kind of out of the blue called like, would you mind sharing? And you know, that's, if you, if you can't share that and pass it forward, then, you know, you're probably in it for the wrong reasons. And, and you're right with, with guys like that. Uh, I definitely um, was shown that at an early age to help others out. Do you think high school basketball should have a shot clock? I'm probably the wrong guy to ask. You've got to mute Lane Fowler on this one. Um, I'm okay. Either way. I played eight games with it out of the 800 and something I coached. And when we played tournaments in California, I'm okay with it. Um, I, to me, it's more problems than it's worth. I just I thought about that one a lot this year as I was watching games. I just didn't see that many games that to me were somebody won or lost because of a shot clock. Um, I, I saw more problems with people trying to operate the regular clock in games this year, and I can't imagine that the issues you're going to have with a shot clock because you watch those college games and the pro games, and they have to keep going to the monitor to see whether to reset the shot clock or what to put it on. I just think you'd have a lot of issues with it being run correctly. I know, I know people are not concerned about that, but I'm very concerned about that. Um, I also think it, it takes some strategy out of it. Um, you know, these people that I, you know, I saw, I see people complain on social media that see the score of a game or whatever, or, you know, they held the ball for the last minute of the, well, do something about it. You're allowed to do something about that. You're allowed to go not let them do that. You know, I don't know a whole lot of teams that can hold the ball for 35 seconds anyway without turning it over. Um, so I'm, I'm not I'm not against it by any stretch. If it, you know, it, it that's fine. Um, but I'm also not going to be leading the campaign to get the thing in. Um, now, you know, you're also talking to the coach that held the ball for the last 12 minutes of the state championship game as well. So. Now, what year was that that you did that? That was 96. We're playing uh, we're playing Irmo in the state championship, and we're up by. 
we're up 24-20 at the half. And it wasn't because anybody was holding, just nobody could score. We're up 24-20, and I lost an argument with my assistant coaches on wanting to hold the ball the entire second half um, because I knew they would not come out of the zone. I, I, I knew they would just try to trap us, and I liked – I just liked our matchup on being able to, to handle the ball, hold the ball, and get some layups and free throws out of it. And nobody – we're up and down the first four minutes of the third quarter. Nobody scored. I mean, it, it, it wasn't anybody holding it. And then we get a three-point play um, to go up 27-20, and I called timeout. I don't care what y'all say. We're holding the ball. You can lay up and free throw the rest of the game. Heskett's like, I can get this little wing jumper. I'm like, no, no, we're shooting layups and free throws the rest of the way. Um, and we, had, you got to keep in mind, we had lost to Irmo 15 straight times. Um, and I just felt like we had to do something different. And uh, final score was a whopping 46-33. Of course, that wasn't a whole lot different score than the Irmo Dorman state championship game two years ago and nobody held the ball in that one um but you know it, there is strategy involved you know if we're going to hold it then you know you got to do something about it you know i know coach whipple won he won some games back there in the early 90s um you know in the teens uh holding the ball you know some of that strategy do what you can do to help your team win yeah. so I, i'm you know i can I, i'm not opposed to the shot clock but like i say it's I'm not leading the charges for it. Now, if we placed you as the czar of the South Carolina High School League, what's one change you would make? With current setup, I would say from the open periods, you get some version or form of 10 days in the spring and 10 days in the fall. Uh, that, that's probably my biggest thing, a little more hands-on time in both sessions there i'm not one of these that thinks you got to have 30 days you know but you know give them a little bit of time in the spring and a little bit of time in the fall would, would be my number one change right now uh, you know wouldn't be the shot clock um you know the rules are fine um that would that would probably be my biggest my biggest thing i, I wouldn't mind maybe allowing them to play a, a few more games um and i probably like the old days when we did the playoffs in the state championship in a two-week stretch instead of a three-week stretch uh, maybe going to a final four where you play the, like Skiza does, where you play the semifinals and the finals in the same weekend. Um, I'm not a big fan of a third round game being an away game or a home game when two one seeds play in the third round. That'd be, that's probably my other bandwagon thing. If you're both a one seed in that third round, that needs to be a neutral site game. I think those uh, are that's all, not a lot of changes though. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Yeah, no, that that certainly is, and I would hundred percent agree with you. There's one thing I would do. I would, I would give us coaches some access to our players in the springtime when it comes to uh, basketball. Oh, no question. I think you got to have, and it can be short. I don't know, a week, two weeks, but spring and fall, I think you got to have access for those, especially for those guys that don't have a basketball class in that semester. Oh yeah, it's 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 certainly real big. I, I think it's it's certainly real big. What are some of your thoughts on social media, and how do you believe it, it, it had its impact that it is going to impact high school athletics? I think the worst impact is on players because I see players that are too interested in trying to have a highlight play or a couple of highlights that they can post on social media as something they did or something great. And, and to me, it makes it to where the game's almost more about a highlight than it is about winning the game. And, and that, to me, is the negative impact. Now, the positive impact, you know, teams have put out some great promotions on their players and their teams that are they're fun to watch. I like, you know, I like scrolling through. 
I definitely like being able to keep up with scores. You know, I, I can sit in the gym on a Tuesday or Friday night and I can keep up with a bunch of games on social media and see how they're going. That's that's definitely a plus. Uh, as far as impacting the game, though, it, it does bother me that some players almost see social media as a promote me. You know, they're putting out their football and basketball. They're putting out their their highlights from their freshman year or something. And, you know, that's pretty irrelevant. And let's, let's not be worried about that right now. Did you have a social media policy when you were at Lexington? I never really did. I just, we always talked about being smart, you know, never give them any bulletin board information. Um, I, I was never a big rule guy. My, my rules were don't do anything to embarrass yourself, your school or your coach. And so that kind of covered social media as well. Yeah, no, it might I, not embarrass you, but if it embarrasses your school or your coach, then no, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I never, I never had a policy, so to speak. What advice would you give to a first year head coach in basketball? You got to be yourself. Don't try to be somebody else. Don't don't try to you know if you're following up another coach. Don't try to be that coach. You got to be you. Um, you you got to be consistent. Um, and, and this sounds maybe like this is a contradiction to being consistent, but you, but being consistent and being fair doesn't mean treating every player the same. Just like students learn differently. Same thing with our players. So you know, some players you you can can treat certain ways and some you got to treat other ways. I don't mean favoritism. It's just like learning uh, skills or learning environments. You know, everybody learns a little differently. Everybody can be corrected a little differently. Um, you got to kind of recognize that. And it took me a while to, to get that. It took a former player talking to me about that before I kind of got that. Um, but being consistent, being fair, um, and communicating what you're doing, why you're doing it, you know, letting letting people know ahead of time, you know, this is the practice schedule. This is when we need you to be there. Even if it's the holidays or the weekend, this is when we're going to have practice and it's important that you be there. You know, you can't just wait till the day before Christmas break and say, oh, yeah, by the way, we're practicing, you know, these six days over Christmas break and expect people to be there. So, you know, letting people know what's going on ahead of time is very, and communicating is very important, I think. No, I, I com- completely agree. All right, one last question for you. How do you right. want how do you want to be remembered as a coach? I would like to be remembered as a coach that was first of all a uh, God-fearing, God-following Christian and was that example for my kids whether it was in a public school or a Christian school that my players would say that about me that hey coach coach Harris was a Christian that that followed the Lord and that he cared more about us than he did the game. Um, and if I could, if I could be remembered as that, um, that that would be really good. Because if I'm a, a God-fearing Christian, then I was probably a good dad and uh, take care of my my kids and my family. And then you'd, you'd like for your players, whether it's cross country or track or basketball, to know you cared more about them than you know just the game itself. Well, Coach, I certainly appreciate your time sharing all of your experience and your knowledge with us. And, you know, my experience with you, you've certainly been a, a man of, of God, a man that is a great service to our to our game. You've been a valuable member of our South Carolina Basketball Coaches Association board. And you've always, you know, sometimes guys get a part of different groups just to say they want to be a part of it. But you've very much been an active part of growing the game and growing the game uh, the right way. And being active in doing that. Uh, and so we certainly appreciate all that you've done for our game. And I certainly appreciate your friendship and your mentorship of, of me 
as, as I continue to grow as a coach. And so we thank you for your time today. Appreciate it. It's been fun. Yes. Thank you, coach. Appreciate it, John. Thanks. You've been listening to the Balmetto State Podcast. For our show notes and other valuable information, please visit our website at balmettostate.com. We would love to connect with you on social media and hear what you think. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by going to at Balmetto State. Thank you for investing your time with us.